John Doon. John, what is your role here, just for us to get a greater understanding? I'm the director of the Search and Rescue International Training Centre, part of the Kosovo Security Force here in the Republic of Kosovo. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are catching up with UK International Search and Rescue's recent trip to Kosovo and we are touching base with John Doon, who along with members of the Kosovo Security Force facilitated their most recent training in cold weather development. Today's wide-ranging conversation was brought to you by our partners at International Road Rescue and Trauma Consultancy, IRRTC. You are an international team specialising in transport-related vehicle extrication and trauma care to a worldwide audience. If you cast your mind back to episode 102, where we spoke with Steve North, who is one of the directors at IRRTC. Now again, these specialize in bespoke industry packages and courses specifically designed to meet the needs of military, security, close protection, counter-terrorism teams, as well as many fire and emergency services, government organizations, private companies, and so many more. They have got a whole host of upcoming courses this year, ranging from the new Trench Rescue Technician courses, the RTCI, the Heavy Rescue, Specialist Responder Advanced courses, and so many other aspects of CPD. IRRTC are based in Yarnfield Park, which is their leading training venue and conference centre right in the heart of the UK. So to find out a little bit more about the company, go over and speak with Neil or Steve at IRRTCRescue.com and check them out in the notes below. Finally, to make sure you're staying up to date with the podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button for more wide-ranging conversations and to keep your finger on the pulse of the emergency services. So without further ado, let's jump in there with John Doon and UK International Search and Rescue's most recent trip to Kosovo in February 2022. John, as people will probably be hearing, you are British. How on earth did you find yourself over here leading such an incredible project? I've been here many times with many organisations, with K4's British military, I was here with the UN and the EU, and I was here with the NATO liaison and advisory team whose job and mandate is to support and guide the KSF on their future structure. And I was a civil emergency advisor here for four years. So what would you have taken part in 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 that capacity? Because some people might have a vague understanding of what that looks like on the ground, but what was your actual role back then? What would you be doing working with the government and trying to assist them and support them, I suppose? My job primarily was with all the agencies for Mm. emergency management. So in case of a disaster, human-made or otherwise, Mm. I would guide them through, okay, this is the plans you need to have in place, this is the SOPs you need to have. I'll take them through all the training. So we'd run exercises, we'd run drills, and that was my job for just over three years before I started here. Just to give them a great understanding, obviously the facility we're at now is beautiful, and Croatia and Kosovo itself is a stunning country, but it has got, for want of a better description, a challenging and interesting past. Yeah, there's not much argument with that. No, the period dating back to pre-1999, there were tough times here for many people. What the 1998-1999 war, again, pretty much tore families apart, tore lives apart. From the NATO intervention, a lot of those former fighters went through demobilisation, demilitarisation process, and from that the Kosovo Protection Corps was formed. Given them a purpose, I'd say, is the exact way to say it. If you've spent years doing that, somebody takes that structure away from you, then exactly what are you going to do? 
And they're incredibly proud people as well. Even on the flight over, I was lucky enough to get into some quite deep conversations. Mm -hmm. And they're very patriotic. It was quite nice to hear and see. And and even now I'm here, very hospitable. Yeah, massively, (laughs) massively patriotic. But in a nice way, not in a uh, steamy nationalist way. They are very proud of their country. Uh, They're very proud of where they were, where they they come to now. Because if we look at it, the war, it's still fresh. It was 23 years ago. So For many people listening, that may be the only association they make with Kosovo still. Yeah, and and I understand that yeah. because I used to think exactly the same. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but I, you, you want to keep coming back. You have kept coming back. No, when this all started, as I say, I was part of the initial planning process and mm. amongst many others, and it was something that's, that actually took over. Okay. And from developing it from something on paper to actually, okay, now we're doing this for real, we're going to make it happen. Mm. And to see where we've come from in a short space of time. Because I think that's important. If we look back, say the war was only 23 years ago. Kosovo was only declared itself independent in 2008. So in effect, you know, the country is 14 years old now. Some major countries have still not recognised Kosovo. But from when the self-declared independence has been, uh, I mean, one of the first countries to recognise was the UK. And the people here appreciate that. But yeah, mm. you know, appreciate what the UK did in 99, but also appreciate that they stood by them in 2008 and said, yes, we, we accept you. So when did that shift really start happening from coming and training members of the emergency services here? I mean, we were speaking on our ride over about some of the, the dive jobs that we go to here, some of the mountain rescues, it's a very mountainous region. Mm. It's a very challenging environment to work in as we're experiencing during this week. Mm. But when did that unique aspect of training people here to having that sort of appetite to create a center where you actually become, you know, you've got a team of instructors here now and the facilities, as I keep reiterating, are great. When did that shift happen? When was the bold ambition to say, you know what, we've got an incredible opportunity here? It actually happened before we even opened. We started with an idea. And then the, Who's we? It was a small team of maybe five, six people. We got to the stage where we had received training from many countries, UK, Germany, US, mm-hmm. Turkey, etc. It got to the stage where we thought, and I believe rightly so, do you know what? We're actually pretty good at this now. So instead of being a training consumer, we want to be a training provider. And initially it was, we'll just train our own guys the Cosmo Security Force. It was a very quick process where we suddenly started to think, we need to think bigger. Many more need this. The police need this. Firefighters need yeah. this. Local civilians, the more we can train. A lot of the medical stuff as well. You know, I see some of the EMT work that you guys do. That was surprising to me. You know, I associated it solely with, from a biased perspective, was fire, was military, stuff like that. But you do, you have quite a successful medical training course here and, yeah. and you know, the different Freck threes and fours and things like that that you bring people out on mm-hmm. and first person on scene. That's quite a large part of what you do as well, isn't it? It's become, it wasn't at the beginning. No. At the beginning, we focused purely on urban search and rescue, mountain and diving, mm. water search. When we started to expand the syllabus and what we could do, we then changed it that we need a lot more medical, but we'll be specific on the medical. Mm. So, for example, we do water training. It's resuscitation, drowning, things like that we, mm. we teach people. On mountain, it's hypothermia, broken bones, etc. Mm. And urban, it was crush injuries, respiration, etc. It's a real mm. condensed playground, as well as the, the things you've created here, which we'll get into in a minute. Mm. It's very unique for that. It's a fantastic place in that you can get anywhere in two, two and a half hours <laughs> in a car. And equally, um, even the airport's only 10 minutes away, if that. Yeah. No, we're, <laughs> we're in the... Per- we are located, as you said, right next to the airport. 
yeah. seven, ten minutes away. But we're close to the centre of the country as well. Mm. So from here, we can deploy wherever we're needed. So mm. if there's a mountain search way down in the south, two, two and a half hours, we're on site, we're mm. ready to go. Some of the resources you've created here, we're looking out the window, we can see collapsed structures, we can see tremendously large and long rubble piles, we can see helicopters, I can see very much a playground mm. uh, on the same standard, if not better than. I mean, you made the, the bold claim earlier, and now having been outside in the daylight, I find it hard mm. to contest, of potentially yeah. being one of the most well-equipped facilities for that type of training globally. Again, this wasn't the plan at the beginning. The plan was just Build it and they will come, though. <laughs> and that started to happen. That yeah. started to happen about three years ago, we were saying to people, you will not believe what we have. Yeah. And they didn't. And then they would come and look. And I think without missing one, we've blown everybody away by what we've got. So uh, talk us through what we have got here. We've got, first of all, help from Sweden. We got their design for a collapsed and semi-collapsed building. That was our two starting points. After that... Is that the three, or oh, sorry, four-storey building I can see from here? Is that, yes. Or did that come after? That's a semi-collapsed building, yeah. That's because even, one. I don't want you to undersell that, because that's quite significantly larger than some of the ones that I will go to that may simply just be a one-up, one-down domestic premise where it has it's still a pancake collapse but mm. this thing is probably not short of a car park style building for want of a better description yeah that's part of our as i say our strategy okay because <laughs> we know that in many other countries they have more money than us they have yeah. more resources than us yeah. so we have got to be bigger and bolder mm. than people think of some else. of the disaster centers like america but they don't have the climate and mm. they don't have uh, the range that i think you you're able to get here as well yeah no, our, our development from those early stages of collapsed and semi-collapsed, we then looked and thought we want to be able to train for every disaster, potential disaster possible. And that's when we got some trains. Let's do train crashes, mm. train crashes with hazardous materials. We've got three at the moment, three train carriages, two passenger, one. But then it kept on spreading. What other disasters are happening? Mm. Uh, helicopter crashes are happening. Yeah. Okay, we need a helicopter. People uh, from earthquakes stuck in tunnels. Okay, we've got a tunnel system. One is not enough. We need more. So yeah. now we have three. I thought you had three as we were looking around the side today. In every disaster, there's vehicles all over the place. So we needed cars, mm. old scrap cars that we can put in there and train on. There's You've got only... about a four-story rescue style tower as well behind us. It's very easy to walk past that. But that's quite a, a large building in itself. Do you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot. You were going to well. <laughs> <gonna, I>, <laughs> yeah, Because it's, Rope Rescue is, is global and it's perhaps more recognised. And we know it sits within International Search Rescue, Urban Search and Rescue. Mm. But you walk straight past it. It's still a blooming impressive, very large structure. It's, um, yeah, that was designed. Like you can't train on that. No, that was designed <laughs> by my guys as well. Okay. Um, they looked at, from their own experience, plus what they'd heard about and seen, mm. and they designed it, and we put the plans in. It says a lot about what you're doing to take that for granted for you to, for you to forget that off the list, the fact of the other work that you're going on here. Yeah, I'll have to give myself a bit of a talking to <laughs> about that one, yeah. But yeah, we've now got 20, uh, 27 different training objects. Wow. Uh, so from six years ago, when we had two, we've now got 27. And I say the idea is whatever you think of, mm. we can train on it. There's two things we don't do. One is tsunami yeah. and one is volcano. Everything else you can think of, we're, we're going to go for You say you don't it. do tsunami though, and, and I suppose maybe I'm reaching a little bit here. I was interested listening last night when you said about this swimming pool style training area mm. that you're going to be constructed hopefully i'm not giving anything away there if that's if that's public information or not 
The, tell me a little bit about that project because that's one of the next things you have in the pipeline. I don't know the time frame on it, but no, that's for this year. Is it this year? The budget Crikey. is approved for this year. Wow. So, yeah. so what, get specific for me what you are looking to uh, implement there. We do diving training and swift water rescue, water rescue, etc. Mm. We have to train outside, so we were pushing hard for our own pool. Yeah. The beauty was though is we designed it ourselves again, so we put down all the things we need. Yeah. So. It will be about 30 metres long. It will be about 15, 16 metres wide. So that's a big pool. It's a big pool. For most people, when they think about an Olympic swimming pool, for example, mm. how long is that, 25 that's metres? 50, that's 50 metres. 50 metres, yeah. yeah. So half the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Just over half huge. the size. It's big. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't just want a swimming pool. So on our design, the depth varies from... 0.6 meters of water yeah. to 1.5 meters of water. So, so you can have a, an entire floor of a house effectively, or at least two thirds of a floor of a house submerged. And, and that's what we will do. We're building a house in the middle of the water. A house in the water. I in thought that's water, what you said yeah. last night. I didn't know I misquote you. That's fantastic yeah, because that is such an incredibly difficult thing to simulate to extricate people from those situations, mm. even if it's just body recovery, yep. which unfortunately a lot of dive... The majority are majority will yeah. be. You know, if, if it, it's not a rescue in the first 25 minutes, it's a recovery. Yeah. But still a very dangerous thing to do. Mm. Less rushed, yeah. but still fraught with things that could go wrong. There's lots of potential hazards, yeah. Um, and so difficult to train with it when you're and not be weather dependent. Yeah. You know, when so we, oh, we've got a great training site at so-and-so water or at that canal. Yeah, if the water's at the right level and it's not full of trolleys and it's not X, Y, Z and all this sort of stuff yeah. and it's not full of sewage, yeah. this is something where you can really control a lot of controllables. Yeah, and that's, that was what we were missing. We, mm. Yeah, there was lots of places we could do it. I mm. say lots of underwater hazards. Yeah. But to do it safely in a training environment is yeah. something different. That's what I feel mm. is kind of like a half pitch sometimes when you hear some training centres saying, we can do that, we can do that, we can do that if... If, 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 and it must have felt, I'm sure you've been in those shoes yourself, where you try and give a guarantee to somebody, you can offer a service, and you turn up and the weather's just not playing yeah. or something's outside of your control. Mm. Whereas this, you're really removing all of those um, sort of hurdles, yeah. and this is something that's going to be ready to go, as is all the facilities we see before us today. Yeah, it will be a, an all-year-round thing. Uh, we've done some river recovery operations before, and we've had to do them in all weathers. So... Mm. For us to train as we operate, we need to be able to do it in all weathers. Mm. But I'm glad you mentioned about shopping trolleys <laughs> because we're also building an underwater obstacle course. So the divers oh. will have an underwater obstacle course. For all of those entrapments and, you know... Strainers. Uh, strainers, thank you. Yeah. People getting stuck <laughs> in strainers. That's really important because yeah. they're, they're the things that kill people yeah. at the end of the day. Uh -huh. We've all seen the YouTube videos of police officers getting pulled underwater and stuff like that because... Yeah. They don't have the ability to read water in that same way. Yeah. No, there's so many cases of that. Mm. Literally so many. But yeah, a shopping trolley will be underwater, mm. along with concrete tubes for people to go through. Yeah. There'll be a car down there as well. So we'll have people trapped in the car, mm. or mannequins trapped in the car, sorry, mm. that we have to recover. And some of those, you never know, there could be air bubbles where they could still be alive. So lots of things to think about. So I don't as well want us to move away from obviously the purpose of why UKI saw it here this time because we've spoken about things that you have put in place to compete on a global scale, but you're also in a very unique position that you do a lot of cold, great cold weather training here. Yeah. You know what I mean, you have the mountains right next to you. We're looking at an average minus eight to minus 10 as it is currently. I know it gets significantly colder than that throughout mm. the year and it varies. 
but it's a great climate for that. What about that cold weather training do you think is still so crucial for, for people to be able to get exposure to? Basically because it's something you, you'll never avoid. Every year there will be a winter. Mm. Whether it's harsh or mild, there mm. will be a winter every year. Yeah. And, and the climate globally seems to just be pendulum in. It's either hot, hot, or it's really freezing cold. <laughs> yeah, and it's difficult to judge now. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. You used to be able to say, yeah, it, in the yeah. winter it will be freezing, mm. in the summer it will be scorching hot. Now you can't always tell. I had a team visiting last year, 2021, and we had a photograph taken on the rubble pile end of April, and there was about 20 centimetres of snow on the ground. Wow. That never happens. No. But it did last year, so yeah. It feels like such a subtle thing that perhaps people don't think they need to train for it because like, oh, we'll get cold and then we'll get warm. The way it plays with your cognitive thinking, things that you would ordinarily find quite easy, your body is in overdrive, mm. just trying to keep yourself going, handling tools, all of these things become so much more laborious and so much more difficult yeah. in those cold weather situations. And obviously the, the likelihood and survivability of the casualty significantly diminishes. Yeah. So it really does add an additional weight and pressure to everything that you're doing, I suppose. Yeah, it's, as you put very well, easy things are not easy anymore. No. So when you cannot feel your fingers just trying to open a pocket, for example, yeah. to open a button or to yeah. do a zip on a jacket, simple things become hard mm. and those simple things then lead to potential that, life-threatening things that's what i mean that, that that cognitive side of it you know watching team members slowly become less aware and certainly walking around mm. a rubble pile you can quickly roll an angle step on some rebar yeah. you can cause yourself a lot of damage very quickly mm. just through not paying attention especially yeah. when there's so many people working there may be dogs in the team there's a lot of complexity going on yeah and this is something we try to stress to people when they come here. For example, they'll do training and they feel fresh, but if they've just gotten off an aeroplane yeah. after a three hour flight, plus two, three hours check-in, plus traveling to get to the airport, and then by the time they get here, they're not 100%. Yeah. And yeah. add a couple of days of stress and mm -hmm. fatigue. Yeah. Certainly if you I saw, that's an expectation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We are designed to be self-sustaining in-country, deployed at short notice. So this is a very, very effective training scenario rather than going down to or up to somewhere local to you. Yeah. You may think it's going to be very similar on the ground, but you've missed out all of that mental load and you know challenge that's coming just getting your boots on the ground. Yeah. And that's a perfect way of, of, of putting it. Yeah, mm. It's the mental thing. We all know when we go to hol on holiday, yeah. going to the airport is always stressful. <laughs> yeah. Getting on the plane <laughs> is stressful. Trying to find your bags afterwards is stressful. And all that happens for you guys, for UK ISAR, mm. before you even touch the ground. 100%. You've gone through all of that and then you're expected to get yourself set up, get out, start searching, start rescuing. You, yeah, you cannot simulate that in a three-hour bus ride from one side of the country to the other. Mm. Now, you spoke about the sort of respect and whatnot that's held for members of UK Fire and Rescue Service. You've now done a lot more work with the UK International Search mm. and Rescue. Why do you think that's, that's important for what you're trying to do here? What sort of an indicator is it that this kind of facility is attracting members of UK International Search and Rescue and demonstrating that this is, this is the place to be to receive that level of training? For me, this is a very personal thing. Obviously, I'm from the UK. Of course. <laughs> so for it's me, nice to have somebody to talk to. <laughs> so for me, it was, it was a personal thing anyway. But also, as I said, we wanted to move from training consumers to training providers. Yeah. I believe we've done that successfully a few years ago. For me, it was also a payback mm. because we've had good support 
2007, 2008, 2009, we had Op Florian here mm. providing training. Five of my instructors went through that training with Op Florian. Really? And we met one of the UK ISR guys last time who was one of the instructors. Back then. Be surreal. So that was fantastic. So yeah. we talk about closing the loop to see, for him to see where you are now. Yeah. So we obviously we did the photograph of him <laughs> and the guys, who all of who aged a bit now. But yeah, yeah, it's it was. And now they're the instructors. Now they're here. You know. And now they're the. Instructors. And you've got a growing team of instructors here as well, which is great to see. Yeah. yeah. So I've got that experience mm. from them, mm. and all of my guys who have had training from several countries. The one that stands out is Ot Florian for all of them. So that was important to me. Yeah. I wanted to be able to pay back. We've also had support from the UK Embassy here, from the British Embassy, who donated us last year €170,000 worth of equipment. Oh. It was stuff we didn't have. Yeah. And without it, we were struggling. They lifted our capabilities with that mm. donation. So for me, with UK ISAR, mm. I saw the Ot Florian link. I saw the link of support through FCDO mm. from the embassy, and it was, you've helped us, now we're going to help you. And it, it's, it's becoming a partnership, basically, yeah. where we're learning from each other. It's just a great development. I'm quite proud of that. The UK invested. Yeah. Now we're paying back that investment. Yeah. And yeah. now... UK Fire and Rescue Service and subsequently UK citizens and the local fire and rescue services where we all belong mm. are benefiting from the training we're now getting from a place such as this. Yeah, and that's, uh, say, that's it. When we train other countries outside here, we are then exporting expertise back to that country. Mm. So if their own citizens need help, they will be better for it because of that additional training. It's, it really is a win-win for everybody. Before we close, I just want to say as well, I've been to a lot of training facilities at different places around the world, and most of them offer some good equipment and, and situations and stuff like that. But sometimes, and sometimes it's part of the charm that you're camping out in the woods, and we will do a little bit of that whilst we're here, I'm sure. Yeah. But you do have some good facilities here as well. And what I mean is, you know, there's several great presentation rooms, um, wonderful catering we've experienced a couple of times already. Yeah. You have an incredible fitness facility. Not yeah. that that should matter to some people, but um, to me, I very much enjoy it and I very much appreciate that. So yes, if you want to do the down and dirty and go up into the woods, it's very much possible. Yeah. So when I see this, I also see large scale, for want of a description, tabletop scenarios, but you could run, you know, Jessup style, multi-agency, mm. big exercises here, you know, yeah. multiple countries involved in simulating cross-service, cross-culture, cross-country working. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, you know, we look across this courtyard, I, I could see it, you know, I could see several bases of operations set up out there yeah. with the facilities for your silver and gold command working out of the rooms like we're saying right now. I think very few people can offer that. I just wanted to, to put that in there. The, the vision is that we can cater for everything and yeah. everybody. Mm. And it's the small things like that that actually lift the standards higher and higher. Yeah. So, yeah, we want people to come here and when they leave to go back home and say, you will not believe what I saw in Kosovo. You will not believe it. And they won't. But one day they'll come here yeah. and they'll go back home and say, you know what, you were right. Well, they, yeah. they are going to hear about it, brother. I can guarantee yeah. you that yeah. much. Just as we close, we've had the first day or two sort of familiarization with the area. We've done some rubble pile work today. We've done some casualty packing and transport and stuff like that. Obviously, all of the crews, all of the course members aren't going to necessarily hear what we're talking about now. But what's the sort of thing you're looking forward to the UK ISR setting up? You've done some work with the director and staff. Mm. What's planned for the next couple of days? And what do you think is either going to challenge them or be a great test for their skill sets? Multifaceted. The main thing is, as I say, 
you have come here like a deployment. Mm. You've come through the airport, you've done the flight, transported to here, ready to operate. Mm. And that's pretty much what you've done immediately. Mm. Uh, you got here and you started to do the, the organization, yeah, the planning, the, the risk and the assessment. Risk security, yeah. And now you're starting to move into the, now we're operational. Now we're going to start doing mm. this. So the rubble pile that we've gone through today is a chance to blow off the cobwebs that you've got people who haven't worked together before. Some of them Some know each other. Some people have only been in the teams a couple of months as well. So this is all very new to them. Yeah, and what better way to practice than to actually just get your hands dirty yeah. and get out and do it. Mm. So that's what will be increasing over the next two, three days. Far more hands-on in the rubble piles, in the tunnels, in the cold. And I'm just looking still forward to up into the mountains at some point as well. I said they're literally only 10 or 15 minutes away from us, although I imagine it's much further to walk than it is just looking at the mountain. Ah. I would describe it as a cheeky walk. Yeah. <laughs> cheeky walk, yeah. I love that. That sounds like a military term. <laughs> it's a little bit cheeky, it was a little bit sweet on the end. It's a cheeky one, yeah. Good. Yeah. John, thank you very much for your time, brother. I look forward to spending hey, the rest of the week. Appreciate it. Great, thanks, man. Over the next week or so, you are going to hear a little bit more from different members of the team, from the different functional roles to the different partnership agencies that we are working with. So I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about it and stand by for some future updates from UK International Search and Rescue's recent deployment to Kosovo in February 2022. We'll see you soon.